Welcome everyone to another episode of the Commerce Marketer Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Zakwitz, and I'm excited to be joined on location here in Las Vegas by Stephanie Urban, who's the Director of Digital Marketing at Tart Cosmetics. And today we're going to talk about A-B split testing without the use of big data. Um, so thanks for being here, Stephanie. Of course, no problem. Excited to be here. So you're currently at Tart, previously worked uh, in online marketing roles at Ann Incorporated. And uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got to Tart, and uh, then a little bit about Tart itself. Sure. So I have been in New York City for almost nine years now. I've been working in online marketing since the moment I stepped into the city. I was doing fashion blogging and working for a recruitment firm doing B2B marketing for them. And then I moved to Ann Taylor where I was worked my way up from email coordinator to marketing manager, doing a number of different things, including loyalty, credit card marketing, email marketing, display, um, and a bunch of other fun things before I started at Tart Cosmetics about two years ago. So where were you before New York City? I grew up outside of Chicago. Okay, I have two questions for you. Best thing about living in New York City, what is it? The best thing about living in New York City is there are always new things to do and try, and there's always a different restaurant to go to. Same question about Chicago. I love that Chicago is a big sports town, but also has a beach with the skyline in the background and really beautiful summers. All right, I've missed on both of them. <laughs> so I had hustle and bustle for New York and food for Chicago. <laughs> Close, that almost at first. The, the food is also very good in Chicago. Uh, very cool. So do you have, you obviously grew up in Chicago, right? Uh, yes, outside the city, but okay. went to Chicago many times. All right, so you grew up outside Chicago, based on Chicago and New York. You've been there for nine years now. Yeah. Which one's better? I love Chicago because it's a, a nice mix of that hustle and bustle, but also a little bit more relaxed and more of a, a sports-centered town that also is growing from a foodie perspective very quickly and lots of change and things going on, and the rent is cheaper. There you go. Cubs fan? <laughs> yes, I'm a Cubs fan. I grew up a Red Sox fan, so I know the elation. You finally get one. It feels good. Yes, I didn't believe it when it first happened. Uh, so I find today's topic very interesting because we've been hearing about big data for a long time, and it turns out that it's mostly just that it's big small, mid-sized retailers really have a hard time mm -hmm. using that big data to do anything with it. They don't have the resources, manpower, maybe even systems here. So you, you get a lot of this uh, paralysis by analysis. So hopefully you can shed some light on us today with how to do some of that testing and how to work with data that's not quite sure. so big that people have in front of them. So before we get into the testing aspect, can you give me a rundown or a look at what a natural e-commerce journey for a Tarte Cosmetics customer looks like? Sure, so Tarte Cosmetics is a super social company. So we have almost 6 million followers on Instagram, maybe more now, but we also are super active on Snapchat, Instagram, all those other great channels where it's easy to find new clients and reach out to our millennial customers. Um, but we're also very active online marketing from a display perspective and paid search and also email. So she could find us through any of those channels, but once she lands on tart.com, one of the biggest things for us is capturing that email address so that we can continue to reach out to her um, and also keeping track of what she's doing on the site. So if she comes to the site, is browsing around a bit, 
and decides that this isn't the right time for her to make a purchase, we want to make sure we have the data and information to reach back out to her and get her to come back and convert. So my team is focused on leveraging those channels to get her to the site and then figure out what she's doing once she's getting there and what to show her to get her to convert. Very cool. So the other thing is, you know, when we look at, talk about testing, you, you mentioned your team. There's a lot of retailers where it's a one or two man wrecking crew. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure how big your team is. There's maybe one or two graphic designers. So testing becomes, I don't say problematic, but it becomes a mental roadblock for them because they're so focused on getting the next email out the door, the next thing done that they don't prioritize testing. Why would you say that's a short-sighted view? Why should retailers really be focused on prioritizing testing nowadays? Mm-hmm. I think that it's so important to test because if you're not testing, you're actually losing money um, because what you're doing is you're not learning about your client and what she's responding to and what is most likely to get her to buy, convert, or even just visit your website. So if you're not taking the time out to build that testing plan, figure out what it is you want to test, and learn about what she likes the most, then you're actually losing that opportunity. So even if it's something as simple as a subject line test, which is one of those cheapest, fastest ways to run an A-B test, if you run a subject line test and figure out personalizing with the first name drives a 20% higher lift, if you're doing that multiple times throughout the year, that's driving incremental revenue for your business. So if you don't strategize and prioritize testing, you're losing that opportunity. So it offsets the cost and time to actually set up those tests. Even at Tarte, we have a fairly small creative team compared to the size of my marketing team. We do have to prioritize what we're testing and then use the learnings to test in the future. So don't just have your creative team test something to test something. Test it three times, figure out which version she's responding to, and then use that to, t- to go up against your next test. But share those learnings back with your creative team to get them to understand, this is what I want you guys to be designing for us because we're testing long form in mobile versus short form. And if we get her to click through and convert at a higher rate, that's what's winning. And we'll use that again in the future. So how do you decide what to test, right? We can test subject lines, we can test a million things with subject lines, you can test content, you can test timing. When you internally are looking at saying, hey, we want to test something, this is where we think we're going to have the best bang for the buck, or this is what we can do. How do you, one, prioritize that, and two, decide what to test? I think figuring out what you want to test also has to start with what you do have. So keeping any limitations that you do have in mind, such as a small, smaller creative team, that will help you understand what's actually feasible for your company. So I think it's important to sit down and write out a list of the data that you have available and the resources that you have in order to run those tests, and then write out a list of potential testing opportunities, such as subject line testing, creative testing for a click-through rate, or even just testing where you're linking to. And subject line tests are easier ones that the actual work falls onto your marketing team and you're not going up to creative asking them to do four versions of everything to figure out a win. But even a small tweak in your subject line can drive a huge lift for you. I think linking tests is also an important and quick and easy place to start for testing because you could say, we're sending an email about lipsticks and I'm gonna drive her into the lipsticks category page or I'm going to deep link her to the product page and see what she converts with more. And then you can use that learning across all of your categories and kind of understand how your clients react once she lands on the website. Very cool. So you you mentioned subject lines specifically on there. And, uh, you know, I I did years of client consulting on email programs. And subject lines was one of those things that I eventually 
advise people not necessarily not to test, but I didn't really encourage subject line testing because every test I saw was incremental, 0 0.2, 0.3% mm -hmm. difference. And there was really mm -hmm. no rhyme or reason to it. It was more happenstance from a results standpoint. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you guys have tested subject lines and have seen what I wasn't seeing, right? The incremental differences there, uh, or larger differences, I should say. Have you found something in subject lines that tend to work better than others, whether it's emojis nowadays, um, some sort of symbols, or um, walk me through a little bit of how you guys came to actually have success with something I was not having clients have success with. Sure. So there's a few things. Um, something as simple as capitalization versus non-caps can drive a fairly significant lift, especially in today's age where you're getting hundreds of emails from all the places that you shop just to help you stand out a bit more. Definitely emojis versus no emojis. We've tested multiple times at Tarte, but we are a more fun, youthful brand. So that's on brand for us to use those cute emojis and lipstick emojis and um, girls dancing emojis to stand out um, without losing our brand identity. So I know that a lot of companies struggle with that because that might be too childish for them to throw an emoji in their subject line. Um, but definitely worth testing also. And friendly from testing I've seen some success with too. Um, and then I guess just back to the actual subject line testing, it's not just personalizing with her first name, but with some other sort of data point that you might have. So if you're running friends and family and you know that clients are more likely to respond because you're speaking specifically to that category that they're interested in, you say friends and family, all palettes 30% off versus friends and family 30% off, those palette buyers are gonna be like, oh my gosh, I need to go back and buy a palette now. Have you found any differences with longer versus shorter subject lines that you talked about, you know, kind of flipping the front end to the back end there? And more so, the reason I ask is because of mobile phone usage, right? I, I, someone commented to me last night that they looked, I was checking a text I got, and they go, man, your texts are huge. And I said, well, I have bad eyes and I wear glasses and I just can't get it. And it is huge, but you know, subject lines are truncated on mobile devices. And I find, at least myself, I look more at the brand name than the subject line when I check them in my, on my phone. Um, have you guys found any success with shorter subject lines versus longer for that reason? Yes, I think Reformation actually does a really great job with their subject lines. They, first of all, are all caps in their subject lines every day. It's part of their branding play. However, they tend to use really short subject lines and that ha helps them stand out. Um, they're also very playful, which is fun too. I think something that every marketer needs to keep in mind now with mobile is the pre-header text. So that little sentence of space that you have beyond the subject line, how else are you dragging her in to click if you're not getting her at the subject line? That's your second subject line technically. So. Um, what can you test and learn with in that space in order to drive that open? And that preheader text is extremely simple. It takes you seconds to do. Mm -hmm. So there's no reason not to test it or just consistently have a, a good preheader text. Yes, and I know a lot of companies, uh, there's executives that love to choose those subject lines. So if your executive level hasn't already asked you to start looking at what that preheader text is, I'd be surprised because it's just as important as the subject line now. So we talk about subject lines, uh, other data points, we're obviously talking how to test without big data, but there's still data that retailers have either through their email provider, backend provider, combination of those things, Google Analytics. You know, looking at other data points that retailers can realistically use, um, what are some of those data points that, or pieces of data people can look at and say, hey, we should be testing this or we should be testing this? 
I think if you can get the information, it would be product level, what she has purchased with you in the past, or if you have that at a browse level even. If you know that your browse abandonment email for skirts just went out last week to X number of clients, you can take that segment knowing that they've been on your site browsing skirts and send them an editorial specific to skirts. So use the, the little data points that you might have and leverage that to build out another campaign or not just a campaign, but a series. The more touch points that you have with her that are even slightly personalized are going to perform better than that batch email that you're sending out to your full file. Lifecycle messages are one of the things that traditionally drive a good majority of people's email revenue while sucking up very few email sends. Uh, but the problem with lifecycle messages, they're often set it and forget it, right? And people don't go back and they're like, oh, these things are doing great for us. Let's let it roll. Have you guys done any testing with your lifecycle and automated messages? I haven't done very much of this at Tart yet, just because we're still getting some of those workflows in place, but I have tested this in my past. I think from a lifecycle perspective, you have to also test which offers you're going to give to her. So if you do have any data based on what category she's bought in the past or what she's most likely to buy again, then you can personalize that offer to re-engage her with the brand without completely diluting your full price brand. If you're trying to pull back on offers globally for your website, then you can test if she's going more likely to respond to that subject line that's just crazy and asking her to come back and shop with you and making sure that you stand up and say, we miss you. That does tend to drive that open and get her back engaged with your brand. If you guys had success with or lack of success with testing into specific segments versus say a batch and blast. So obviously with a batch and blast, you get a larger population of people, but with different motivations and behaviors, right? Some of them are just not opening, some are opening because they're just engaged. Um, so you can easily test something there. It's A and B, it's black and white versus something you've already segmented out, past customers of XYZ product, or just past customers if you wanna go a little more high level. Have you found more success with one approach over the other, or is it pretty consistent across the board? I've definitely found success with this. I think it's important to keep track of what your clients are interested in or have purchased in the past to use that in the future. So you, we have four new store sets a year um, of products and they tend to be all along the same lines from a category perspective. So if we know she loves eyeshadow palettes, then we will take the time to make a different segmented email for our newest eyeshadow palette and say, wow, you really have to come check out this new eyeshadow palette. We think you'll love it. That will perform better than the batch new palette has arrived email that's going out to everyone else because we're speaking to her as if we know that she's interested in those things. Very cool. So you talk about looking at results and things like that. So how exactly do you guys track results? For A-B testing, we do build out a three-month-at-a-time plan, and we do prioritize, like we were saying earlier, based on what we think that lowest hanging fruit is and also what we think is actually reasonable for our team to churn out over a period of time. And then for each of those tests that we run over that course of three months, we run each of those tests three times to really help us determine what that winner is and then keep track of those within an Excel document um, tabbed by the test type. Does everyone on your team have access to that Excel file? Is it, uh, the, can upper management get that at a whim whenever they want, or do you guys kind of lock that down to only the need to know? Yeah, so the Excel document is shared within my team only, and then we provide monthly hindsights to our executive team, and we also do weekly meetings with our creative team to go over those tests 
and what is winning or what might not be winning just so that they understand why they're doing all of those extra steps from a creative perspective. Have you ever had a test that came back, you had a notion going in say, hey, this is, this is a, a, a tart customer. This, we know who she is, she's bought from us, or maybe she didn't buy it from us, but you've run a test because you had a hypothesis were confident and then the test results came back and it was counterintuitive to what you thought and you don't really have a rhyme or reason for it has that happened to you before yes one of the biggest tests that i've run in more at more than one brand that i've worked for is actually product recommendations within the email and it was via different providers and somehow i'm just not getting them to win from a bottom banner perspective so if you're saying we think you'd also love and show her three personalized products it's not driving higher conversion, and I really struggle with this, and we're continuing to test it, but it's, it's mind-boggling. That is really interesting to me because I, even looking now, not doing client consulting work, but looking at analysis, even with, within Bronto itself and, and talking to consultants and things like this, we see those consistently win. So you're right that it's counterintuitive and can't figure out why. So I, it could be placement, maybe, and I had this conversation at lunch today, but maybe it's placement at the bottom of the messages that people are just so tuned in to saying, hey, there's three products down there below the main content. I just tune them out and maybe it's sticking them on a rail, putting them somewhere else or giving a different visual cue to it. But it's really interesting you say that. I think that could definitely be it. Be it. I think also we've tested from a merchandising perspective, if we static choose those products that we're showing her, she's more likely to respond to that versus some of these automated tools. So sometimes I guess you might know your customer customer better than you think that you do and cross-selling her to those items um, based on what other client data you might have. So humans are the IBM Watson before the IBM Watson, right? We <laughs> maybe, just It's yes. just humans. Or maybe it's just the brands I work for. <laughs> do you guys look at other data points? Because you mentioned social earlier, right? And you, you have... I presume a younger demographic. Do you look at social data points when you're figuring out what to test? And if so, how do you kind of come up with that determination and saying, oh, you know, we're seeing this on social. We should probably do something like that inside of email. Yes, social is a huge part of our strategy. And over the last year, we've started working much more uh, closely with the social team at Tart to make sure that we are taking those wins from social and leveraging them through email. So if we know that we posted this gorgeous shot that we um, did in office at Tarte, and it has tons of engagement on Instagram. Um, we want to take that image and build something around it. I think too, we've seen this whole hashtag notion, which I can't believe the hashtag is still around as our main source of searching through content. I feel like there needs to be something new, but hashtags are huge for us. So we, we commonly send out emails sharing with her what is that hashtag that we're using so that you can go see what everyone is um, posting about. So one of our biggest ones this year was hashtag Shape Tape Nation because we have this brand new concealer that's out that sells one every 30 seconds and people are obsessed with it. And we have tons and tons of social engagement. So we sent an email out saying, have you joined the Shape Tape Nation and uh, used a bunch of those UGC images plus a large call out to that hashtag to engage her, tell her what's going on in our social community and then drive her to Instagram. So UGC is obviously a big topic nowadays. It's becoming, people connect generally to peers more than they connect to stock models. Uh, I think it's just human nature. Um, you guys have obviously used some UGC in your campaigns. Uh, have you found that to be consistently 
testing better or just consistently perform better than traditional you know, static hero image messages? I think it's definitely something that our client responds to. It's not something that we've even tested that much because we we want to share those images and also have our clients feel like they can be involved with us and have that opportunity to maybe get featured as well. It's definitely worth testing too if you're not already. But I think also ratings and reviews is huge in the beauty industry. So that's something that we've consistently uh, tested and or included in our editorial strategy for Tarte, making sure we're calling out those really rave reviews for new products and old products. How does seasonality play in the testing as well? Because obviously you have a lot of retailers that say, we just don't test during Q4. Traditionally, most retailers busy as time of year. You mentioned you guys do four launches, mm -hmm. if you will, throughout the course of the year. So are there times of the year you guys do not test or are you pretty consistent all the way through? So we try not to test during highly promotional periods to try and mitigate any risk. But if there is something that we've been thinking about doing and we know that it's a, such a high volume period that we'd be able to make a quick decision about what wins or doesn't win, then we can run a test during that time. Um, I know you can also run a test where you deploy the A-B test for two or three hours and then just take the winner and deploy the winning concept to the rest of the file, which I think is also a great strategy if you're in that time period where you're too afraid to do a full file 50-50 test, I think that's a great opportunity to still fit that test in without potentially choosing the loser for the full file. Can you think of a test that just went insanely well? So a test that you always circle back to and say, this is why you test right here. I have one, but I can't share it. <laughs> We'll go off the record with that one. <laughs> yeah. All right, fair enough. All right, so you mentioned earlier about setting a testing plan. You guys do it three months in advance. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about if retailers want to get into, start controlling consistent testing. How do you go about setting up a testing plan? What advice would you give? It's You guys do three months out. That may work for you. Um, obviously, I think a testing plan does a lot of things like it holds you you're accountable. Right? If you miss it, you're missing on something much on a much larger scale. What's the purpose of the testing plan and why did you guys choose going three months out? I think it just helps you stay organized and stay more accountable to actually getting those tests out the door. So something that we had done before my team grew a bit was let's test two times a week or two times a month, whatever that is. Whatever that reasonable amount of tests you think you can get done just use that as your baseline if you don't have the time or the team to sit down and build out that strategy. But building the strategy out would help you stay organized and on top of it. So even if you missed a test, you can push it out a week or two. I think another way of going about it if you have a smaller team and don't have the time to build out a strict strategy is just to say, this month we're going to test subject lines. So it's the month of May. I wanted to do five subject line tests in the month of May. So just sitting down and making sure that that's on your radar and whatever the timing is that works out for it, as long as you get five subject line tests done in the month of May, then you've achieved that mini goal. And I think the more that you do testing and prove how important it is and prove the incremental value of those tests, the more important it will become in your priorities. So I think then you'll really want to sit down and say, these are the next three months. I'm going to test subject lines in May, creative in June, and linking strategy in July. But are you a proponent of stepping out of your comfort zone and testing? Because that's a challenge for retailers, right? They, you want to be on point with your brand. You don't want to 
anger people, which you always anger someone, right? But you don't want to anger people. You want to upset your customer base. But sometimes that creative, especially sometimes stepping out of your comfort zone, either as a marketer, as a retailer, as a brand is scary. It's bold. Um, you know, what advice would you give to someone when you're saying, Hey, well, let's test creative. Do you do it more a controlled environment or do you guys internally pitch around ideas? Maybe throw, everyone has to throw two ideas out there that you know you will never do just to get creative juices flowing. How do you guys balance the, how, how much boundaries you push while still staying on point? It depends on your brand, but I think that you should try to be a little bit more out of the box and playful with those tests if you can, because that's where you're gonna see the difference. Just changing one word in your subject line isn't going to make the difference from an incrementality perspective. But I know in my past at another brand that I worked for, we were all sitting around one day and we were doing a free shipping promo and it's probably our sixth one of the year. So we were like, no one's even gonna care about this free shipping promo. So someone came up with the idea of sending out the subject line, holy ship. And that was so off brand for us. And somehow we got it approved by the SVP of e-commerce and we sent it out and we had an insane open rate. And were we ever gonna send that subject line again? No, but we did learn that those crazy out of the box subject lines that aren't necessarily on brand, if you really need it, if you need to drive that open for that promo that you thought was gonna be dead, just go out of the box a little bit. Don't play on words the way that we did, but just do something that you wouldn't normally do and see how your clients respond because that's how you're learning. Beyond that, I think that you always need to be pulling examples from all brands and all industries. So I work in beauty now and I'm still pulling examples from fashion brands, from Best Buy, Hotels.com. You just have to stay awake and watch what else is going on out there and, and use those ideas and turn it into the right idea for your brand. I appreciate that because some of that can go into, you're looking at other examples. I think one of those things you can always look at as well as your own social feeds, right? Because you have, you wanna go off point, but if your customers are on Facebook and they're commenting on posts that you have and their comments are a little more, I don't say racy is the right word, but a little more boundary pushing or a little more off brand. You could probably look at that and say, hey, you know, we have a little bit of flexibility here because we see our customers actually doing that. So I love the idea of just watching everything, whether it's your own social or other industries, because people are still people. People that buy cosmetics mm -hmm. go on trips, they book hotels, right? So you're still talking to a lot of times the same demographic. So I think it's great advice. A lot of testing, uh, for a lot of retailers will come into needing approval, especially if you're a smaller team, because if we want to test creative, now we're sucking time out of our creative department to come up with more content, which may take away from other projects. So on the topic of getting management buy-in, what advice would you give to someone that needs to put together a plan to say, hey, how do we approach my manager or my VP to get buy-in for a, a consistent testing plan? I think it just goes back to that idea that if you're not testing, then you're missing revenue potential. And if you're not learning what your client responds to, then you're not sending them the best marketing that you can. So starting simple again, if you need to start with subject lines or you need to start with a CTA test within the creative, just saying, this is a test I really wanna run. It's not even gonna cost us extra money to send the test this way. It is gonna cost a little bit more time, but if we test this three times and learn that we can drive a 20% higher um, engagement and or revenue with this type of test and then do that 
a hundred times a year, let's think about what the business impact could be there. It's huge. So um, I think that it's just having that open conversation with your management team saying, I think we're missing out by not doing this. Great insights. Thank you. Uh, final question before I get you out of here on a game show type question. What's the biggest mis misconception about testing that you would like to dispel? I think the biggest myth about testing is that it's difficult. Um, I think that you can keep it simple, you can get more complex, you can take the winner of the open rate and the click-through rate and combine those and drive even more incrementality for yourself. So just take the time to do a little bit of testing and you might learn that it's worth the time and effort. Excellent. Thank you, Stephanie. Loved having you as a guest today. I am going to get you out of here on this, though. You like game shows, I assume, or did at some point. Yes. In 15 seconds or less, I want you to give me as many fish as you can name. You ready? Go. Pike, walleye, cod, hogfish, sailfish, swordfish. Uh, I, I should be better at this. Dolphin. Tuna. <laughs> I'll give you tuna. Time's up. So you, uh, with tuna, you have eight. So there's some fascinating things about this I love. Uh, I used to do this a lot way back in the radio day. No one ever says goldfish. It's the, <laughs> no one. It, it is unbelievable how no one ever says that. Uh, and then I always look at the first two fish people name because it's always intriguing to me how their mind works. You said walleye and... Pike. Pike. <laughs> no one has said either of those two fish. It's because I used to do a lot of fishing in Canada with my family. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Eight, that's pretty good. The record right now. Ooh. So Stephanie Urban, Director of Digital Marketing at Tar Cosmetics. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. Before we close, any closing remarks you want to say? Just test everything. Test everything. That's what we'll call this episode. So thank you so much for your time today. We really you. enjoyed having you here. And thanks for joining us for another episode of the Commerce Marketer Podcast. We'll be back on our next episode with more uh, great insights and uh, quirky sense of humor for me.